miss the show, no worries. On point and on this podcast, if the need for a third booster is so urgent, where is the actual urgency to get shots to 25 million Canadians? We've got British rushing out 1 million shots a day to the entire country. What are we waiting for? Or do we have the actual supply on hand? Justin Trudeau assures us we have the contracts for shots. The question is, why aren't they here? The banks warning the Trudeau government to stop spending, but it seems pretty clear that not only does the Trudeau government not focus on monetary issues, but they have no plans to be fiscally prudent. I mean, they never were. So why stop now? We will break down the fiscal update for you. Why can't Justin Trudeau quit Huawei? Today's party votes against banning this obvious threat, despite more than enough evidence to show that this Chinese company has no business being anywhere in this country. And now we have more proof as the Washington Post reveals Huawei is more involved with state espionage than first reported. And four years later, the Toronto cops ask for help in identifying a suspect they believe was at the Sherman home during the same time the couple was strangled to death. Why has it taken four years for this suspect to be put forward and have they finally got their guy? Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. We have procured enough supply for everyone to get boosters. The delivery of those boosters is on the provinces, and they are setting up their timelines in terms of that. Right. The tidal wave's coming. Too bad no one in charge bothered to get ahead of it, so the province and the feds will just point fingers at each other. Alex Pearson with you on this Tuesday, December 14th. Holy hell. It has been that kind of day. There is just absolutely no shortage of news today with a lot of it breaking in just the last couple of hours. So buckle up, right? Because here we are, 11 days until the big red man arrives and you can just smell the misery coming our way. You know, we're in a very predictable wave five. And despite all the warnings to get ready, somehow we aren't. And I don't know if you've noticed it, but I've certainly noticed a, a big change in the last 24 hours. We've seen this real shift in position on Omicron and this new urgency all of a sudden. So I think you kind of have to read between the lines of what's not being said by those in charge to understand that life-sucking restrictions are coming our way. What those look like, of course, they're not saying. Not yet, anyway. Dr. Karen Moore said measures are coming, but then would not elaborate. And in the last couple of hours, the Prime Minister has called for an emergency meeting tonight with uh, the premiers of all the provinces to talk about a whole bunch of uh, measures they want to bring in, including travel restrictions, uh, newer vaccine rules, uh, how big Christmas gatherings should be. I mean, remember the Prime Minister said like two years ago, we just need to get around this corner get to the next Christmas. How many times have we heard that? It's never, it's like Groundhog Day from hell. It just never changes. And we know this variant spreads quickly, that we know, and we also know cases are more mild, so that is good. We know that vaccines are not a silver bullet for this virus, but if you've got a vaccine, you'll probably get sick. If you don't, you could land in the hospital. The problem is we clearly are not getting them in time for this wave. Because the devil's always in the detail, and sorry, but the talk on vaccine boosters just doesn't match the walk. I mean, we're being told to get boosters as fast as we can, right? That Omicron is coming like a tidal wave. Cases are doubling every three days, but have you tried to get the booster? It's not that easy. 
like a couple of million other people, I ended up getting the AstraZeneca shots. And I've tried to get the booster, but the pharmacy's saying, well, no, 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 you have to wait exactly six months to the day to get your next shot. Well, Omicron's supposed to be the dominant variant in two weeks, so by the time I get the booster, or others who got AstraZeneca get the booster, Omicron will then, of course, be <laughs> replaced by another variant. And I'm getting this story from countless people. My 80-year-old mother keeps getting turned away from getting a third booster. She's in the vulnerable category that Dr. Moore is saying, get the shot. She can't get it. And studies suggest that AstraZeneca doesn't really have much of a fight against this Omicron variant. But we know that the efficacy of all the vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, whatever you got, wanes after about 8 to 12 weeks. So you got to wonder, like, why are those in charge waiting for the six-month deadline for boosters if those in charge know we need them now? I mean, Israel didn't wait. They boosted their citizens in the summer. Probably should have noticed that, right? Whoa, what are they doing in Israel? Chances are we should follow. Britain's not waiting. They used AstraZeneca for their whole population and now have launched a nationwide campaign to get one million boosted shots into arms every single day. A million shots a day to get people vaccinated by New Year's. And what are we doing here? Well, reacting, of course. We're playing catch up as we always do. But I don't think this is actually about the, I don't think this is about this six month deadline. I don't actually think we have the supply. Otherwise, we'd have a big campaign, right? And so far, we have delivered 2.8 million boosters. We have 7 million doses available in Canada right now, but that means 19 million more shots are actually needed. And Justin Trudeau is quick to point out that there are guaranteed shots for every Canadian, that his government has airtight contracts to get these booster shots, right? But listen to this exchange that he had with CTV, where he basically admits, unless I'm hearing this wrong, that we have the agreements, we just don't have the shots. We have signed deals with Pfizer and Moderna to receive ten, uh, tens of millions of shots into 2022 as soon as we need them. But I guess we need them now, is my question. Uh, so when you, are they coming? Still, they're coming as soon as we need them. Is there, there a is schedule? Not, there is a schedule. There are, there, well, there are commitments. Schedule. There are commitments soon. to have the boosters yeah, in Canada soon. as soon as we need them. We soon. have enough boosters for everyone. But we don't have them here in Canada. I'm just, I'm just trying to, like, if all 26 million people said we want them now. We want them tomorrow, we wouldn't be able to deliver them. Oh, we can't deliver them, but we've got them. We just don't have them here to deliver them, but we've got a contract, right? Uh, that was Evan Solomon uh, talking to him, and I'm glad he pushed back, because bottom line is we needed the boosters weeks ago, right? The contracts are great, but last I checked, you can't inject a contract into your arm. If you can, tell me, please, I'll get one. But if there's so much urgency to get ahead of Omicron, what are we waiting for? If those in charge want the public to treat this latest threat seriously, I don't understand why they don't. Why are we always so reactive? I mean, those in charge, they've mastered their talking points. They've got our backs. They sound like they have a plan, but time and again, it's never actually followed by action. So unless we're all of a sudden getting 19 million boosters in Canada over the next couple of weeks, there's just no way that those who need to be boosted the most will actually get a shot in time for Omicron. I mean, two years into this thing, are you kidding me?
It's just, it's inexcusable. Because we get months of warning from other countries of the incoming threat. Months to prepare for this. And time and again, those in charge, they don't bother to get ahead of it. It's like, oh, the summer's off. I'll just take a kickback and I'll just relax. I mean, the contracts mean squat if the vaccines you bought aren't here in the country. So, you know, here we are again in a very predictable wave five. We've got restrictions and soul-sucking lockdowns hanging over our heads and 25 million Canadians who are being told, go and get your booster shot. It's just that they're not available. Because I guarantee you, if they were, maybe those in charge would put their urgency into actual action and ramp up an aggressive vaccine campaign like they're doing in other countries. But hey, we got contracts. We got guarantees. We just don't have the shots. So... Try to get your shot. I hope you do. But I just I think it's a supply issue and not a wait your six month issue. Strong monetary policy framework is the best weapon in our arsenal to keep prices stable so that Canadians can afford the cost of living. That's why yesterday we renewed the Bank of Canada's 2% inflation target to ensure that the current rate of inflation does not become entrenched. Mm. Oh, yeah, that was exciting for me to listen to that fiscal update. Oh, yes, it was, but I do it so you don't have to. And we uh, got a bit of an idea of what the Trudeau government plans to do with our money, and uh, the numbers for me just start to blur. We're going to spend $4.5 billion to deal with Omicron. $5 billion will go for BC's recovery. $13 billion more in COVID supports. You know, things like vaccines and rapid tests, which would be nice about now. We'll take them. $71 billion in new spending, which would also include the $40 billion for compensating First Nations children. But this spending will happen over the next year, six years. And then when you look at the deficit numbers, we were at $354 billion. But now we're projected to come in at a nifty $144 billion. And that's down. Apparently it was going to be $155 billion. But uh, the oil-hating Trudeau government can thank, in part, our higher oil prices for the added wiggle room. But uh, inflation costs also drove up the cost of what we buy and services. And, of course, that brings in more tax revenues. So they actually did pretty well. Uh, But once upon a time, you know, these numbers would just make our heads explode. But now we're in a pandemic, and it's all met with a shrug. And, of course, it comes on the same day where Omicron obviously threatens to turn our economy on its head. And not included in the numbers today is any of the $78 billion made in promises for the election. It does not tell us how the government's going to address cost of living or how the government will cool the surging inflation. So the devil is in the detail, but I, I couldn't find the details. That is why I turned to a guy named Philip Cross, senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, 36 years at Stats Canada, specializing in macroeconomics. Hello, Philip. Good to have you. Thanks for having me back, Alex. First impression of what you heard today? First impression is you kind of wonder why they bothered. Um, <laughs> you know, there, there's just so little in this. Uh, I guess it's it's going back to the traditional uh, role of the fiscal update. It, it just sort of sets the table for the April budget, and it just updates us where government's uh, revenues and deficits are and, and gets ready for the big show in April. Um, well, assuming we get that, Philip, we haven't had a big show in two years. And for whatever reason, people are just fine with that, which is crazy to me because all the provinces have uh, put toward, you know, forward full budgets. Yeah. 
Well, as you say, though, I mean, they really didn't uh, announce, implement any of the things they promised during the election. There was no yeah. surtax in banks or, or taxes in the wealthy. There's no money for long-term care or social housing. It's, uh, you know, there's a little bit more pandemic-related money, but uh, basically it was a, a stand-pad budget. I suppose the thing that really caught my eye in here was that, uh, as you mentioned, the government's made a lot of money on inflation, and of that money, they basically spent two-thirds of it, and only one-third of it went to deficit reduction. So I think there's a signal there that this government just loves spending and nothing's going to change that. No concerns about inflation, no concerns about high debt-to-GDP ratios are going to change that. One wonders that, you know, the only thing that will change it eventually is presumably higher interest rates. And those are coming, albeit they'll tell us they are not. But again, we didn't get a clear picture of what uh, that could look like. And, and for, for everyday people, Philip, they don't sit here watching fiscal updates, I assure you. I mean, they probably don't even know what happened today. But th- what they do want to know is, how is this government going to make my life more affordable? And we got none of that today. Um, none, like There's no details on how are you going to make it so that I can afford to buy the food that, that I can no longer afford. Yeah. Well, in that opening clip you you played of Freeland, I mean, she made it very clear that she's leaving this to the Bank of Canada, um, that, that she's saying the Bank of Canada is responsible for inflation. And, uh, you know, arguably she's quite right on that. The problem is that uh, the Bank of Canada, to get rid of inflation, may implement policies that is that Freeland and her free-spending colleagues in Ottawa aren't going to like very much. So, uh I think the Bank of Canada will look at this and say, okay, uh, we're not going to get any help from this government on inflation. It's up to us, and we're going to have to do what what we have to do. And, of course, this is all contingent on the assumption that we will see no more lockdowns, we will not need any more aid packages, that uh, Omicron will just simply go away. So, again, all of this is just simply, it's written on paper today, but it could change very easily tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting too. They uh, they take. Uh, I heard Freeland say that her her anti-inflation program was to make sure the Canadians have a job. I mean, that's you know that goes back to the that just seems to ignore the basic uh, rules of economics. Is is that you know the more that you stimulate the economy, the more you create jobs, the higher inflation is going to be. That there's a, a relationship there that uh, they just don't seem to understand and. As I say, there's there really it was really quite surprising that there was absolutely nothing about inflation in this document. I guess they they felt that renewing the Bank of Canada's target yesterday uh, was all they had to do, and uh, they'll just go back to their free spending ways again. Yeah, and there will be very little discussion on this. I mean, so it's not done by accident on December 14th because the House rises uh, on Thursday. And so this will all kind of uh, get lost in the blur of the holiday chaos and COVID and all the rest of it. And so, you know, what needs to be questioned likely won't because there's just not going to be time. Well, and there's there's a theory out there that when they announced that this, this update was coming about a month ago, that they didn't realize at that time that um, Omicron was going to come along and once again steal the show. Uh, you know, the the focus of this update, uh, which was a very thin document, by the way, was mm-hmm. uh, almost exclusively on the pandemic. As you say, there was a little bit more for First Nations children, but most of the spending is, is uh, pandemic-related. And, 
I'm pretty sure that that a month ago, this is not what they wanted to roll out. They didn't want to remind Canadians. I mean, it was that we're still trapped in the pandemic. It was very interesting that Freeland herself couldn't deliver this in Parliament. Uh, she had to deliver it yeah. virtually because a couple <laughs> of her aides have been exposed. So uh, that's a very graphic reminder that this pandemic is uh, remains with us, and uh, it, that's going to really tie what this government's going to be able to do over the next little while. There is an irony here, though. I mean, high oil prices have added revenue to the government. I mean, this government wants to cut fossil fuels right now, and it's likely the one thing that can save their rear ends. I mean, so, you know, uh, you know, there there are upsides here. It's whether or not they will capitalize on that and take advantage of it. Yeah, and that, that goes back to, yeah, what was missing in this. And I suppose you can forgive them and say it was just a fiscal update. It's not a budget but nevertheless, there's no reason to expect, based on this government's past behavior, that in the, that anywhere in their plans, they're going to have anything to say about improving our exports, about improving business investment, about raising productivity, about uh, creating more innovation in our economy. All these sources of economic growth just seem, you know, this government doesn't seem to be uh, uh, understand what what they are. And instead, they basically say, well, if we spend more, if we push up government spending, that'll raise GDP. And, you know, never mind what happens in all these other sectors of the economy. Never mind what happens to to, uh, debts. It's it's a very funny way of looking at the economy, to put it mildly. And and Freeland did mention, you know, she tried to compare our situation to the United States, that, you know, we're kind of in the same category as the United States. This is a transitory issue, which it is not. Um, But the difference between Canada and the United States, they have inflation as well, but they have a a GDP that is actually growing. Their economy is growing. Our our economy is not. We have not sold this country, and and people are not investing in this country. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's funny, though. I mean, yes, our GDP numbers are weaker. Uh, but our employment numbers are stronger. And, you know, that goes back to something else that was missing in this budget. I mean, everybody's talking about inflation, but one of the real drivers of inflation in Canada, uh, I mean, I, I would say there's two things that are unique to the Canadian economy. You can't just say it's global supply chains or a global phenomenon. Uh, mm-hmm. What's happening in our housing market is very specific to us. And what's happening in terms of labor shortages in this country? Yeah. Uh, and that's a real concern. I think that's what the Bank of Canada is going to focus on. When wages start reacting to prices, and we're already seeing a, a, the beginning of a reaction there, that's when the Bank of Canada is going to say, okay, this is becoming embedded in the economy. We're going to have to start to take actions. And there was absolutely nothing in this budget about labor shortages, uh, about um, making it easier for employers to, to hire people, um, yeah, it's not a word. So uh, to say that this is a global phenomenon is uh, uh, that only explains a small part of inflation. It is the talking point and they will stick to it. Philip, very much appreciate your time on this. Thanks for breaking it down. My pleasure. Thanks. That's Philip Cross joining us here today. So there you go. What is taking Justin Trudeau so long to make a decision on Huawei? I mean, maybe he kind of did today. His government, his cabinet voted against banning the telecom company. Why? 
who knows? I mean, there is more than enough evidence and reason we should have said no to this company years ago, but now we have more. And that is through internal documents obtained by the Washington Post that suggests Huawei is far more involved in state surveillance than first thought or what China admits to. And so they got access to over 100 marketing presentations posted on a publicly accessible Huawei website that reveals applications for products in various fields of surveillance. And among those presented, two appeared to show Huawei designed certain features on detention camps in Xinjiang province and surveillance tools used in the province. And, you know, the U.S. banned Huawei. It is pushing Canada to follow suit, alleging it has, you know, too many ties to the Communist Party to conduct these espionage operations. And, well, here's the the proof that we kind of need or already had. So why won't they say no? Christian Leprecht is a professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University. He's also a senior fellow over at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Good to have you. Hello, Alex. So some of the things that um, were found on these papers or this presentation is that Huawei pitches how it can help government authorities by IDing individuals by voice, monitoring individuals uh, and what their political interests are, managing ideological re-education and labor schedules for prisoners. It's quite a selling feature. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'd written an op-ed on this a couple of years ago. So what this does, it consolidates what we already knew. uh, But what we have here, before it was sort of stories here and there, we were able to pull off contracts that Huawei had signed with different countries, different authoritarian states to deliver different types of technology. And so what we learn here is from Huawei itself uh, the fact that uh, they are actively marketing uh, this, this is something that they had previously kept fairly quiet. They show up at sort of invite-only conferences and so forth. Uh, so this just kind of really lays it out for the world to be to see. So there, there's several dimensions to this. One is, of course, the as you've laid out, um, Huawei as a major enabler of massive human rights abuses within China itself. But the corollary to that is Huawei as an enabler of massive human rights abuses in countries and especially in authoritarian countries around the world, something that's sort of someone referred to as digital authoritarianism, where this technology is used, for instance, Huawei is keeping people like Alexander Lukashenko in power because they've built his entire surveillance state and his entire surveillance system. And so in that sense, Huawei is also a political arm of the Chinese regime uh, because it makes sure that it spreads authoritarianism and authoritarian ideas uh, and keeping all the authoritarian kleptocrats uh, in power together. Right. And so, you know, last week we had the Chinese ambassador to Canada, Kong Pui, um, you know, out there once again threatening Canadians on Canadian soil and saying, you know, there'll be a price to pay if Canada says no to Huawei. Um, now, look, I, the Trudeau government, as you know, as you probably agree, should have said no to this a long time ago. I don't think they're going to make a decision given our athletes are going over to Beijing. Um, but I just can't see any reason that the prime minister can say yes to this company, despite the fact that uh, it's clear the Liberals MP today, uh, MPs on the committee today looking into this company voted against banning it. I, it to me, it just none of it adds up. 
Well, we've talked about this before. I mean, there's no reciprocity. It's not like a Canadian company that offers these that would offer these sorts of products could compete on the Chinese markets. The Chinese have explicitly excluded any company that is not Chinese from the Chinese uh, telecommunications and IT infrastructure. So why would we let Huawei uh, in here? Um, and uh, over on top of that, a company whose ownership structure has always been notoriously opaque. So uh, nobody quite understands what the relationship to the Chinese regime here is. And with the documentation of these massive human rights um, uh, abuses that Huawei uh, enables on a global scale, um, uh, you know, it's uh, a little bit duplicitous. This is a government that likes to style itself as a defender of all sorts of people's rights. We um, and and so uh, in in Canada, but then when it comes to people's rights abroad, we're quite happy to turn a blind eye. And my guess is, uh, my best hypothesis on this is this is probably about trade-offs that there's certain um, uh, probably investment interests and capitalist interests that are close to the Liberal Party of Canada that have significant amounts of money in China that are worried that uh, their investments might go down the drain uh, or be severely uh, affected if uh, Canada bans Huawei. So we're trying to sort of muddle our way through by saying, well, we're not going to ban Huawei. We're just going to make it difficult for Huawei to do business here and we'll try to convince the teleco, the telcos and so forth. But of course, it then sort of makes us sort of this weak ally, right? That when, you know, our sure. close allies, Australia, New Zealand, uh, the United Kingdom, several European countries uh, have now been very explicit about uh, uh, banning Huawei from their IT infrastructure. You know, Canada, once again, looks like, you know, we're trying to uh, to find sort of the middle ground that, uh, that can get us uh, everything and anything. And so then we're surprised when you know, our citizens get taken hostage uh, in diplomacy mm. actions by uh, Beijing um, and our allies don't come to our rescue and don't come to our side. And I think it's time for Canada to play balls and to be consistent um, in terms of its China policy rather than sort of uh, uh, this 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 muddling through effort that that somehow we can sort of find a find a fine line. Um, you know, we, we I think need to pick a side here um, and uh, uh, need to point out the duplicity, the actions that uh, the Chinese regime and its state-owned companies and uh, tech companies, crown jewels such as Huawei, are engaged in. Yeah, well, it would require them to have a Chinese policy period at this point, which would be nice. But, you know, we've got a number of Canadian telecom companies, and they've clearly spent millions of dollars, hundreds of millions, allowing Huawei technology into their companies. And now they're realizing, oh, crap, that we might not be allowed to do this. So they want the government to repay them. But, you know, they, they sh probably shouldn't have gone ahead with it, given... Uh, the risks that have been openly spoken about for the last few years. I mean, ultimately, I get that businesses take risks and have to, you know, compete for this. But we have to, I guess, decide what is more important to this country, a, a private company's bottom line or, or the country's entire national security. Well, it seems that for this government, nothing seems to be too expensive uh, when it comes to taking sort of uh, decisions and even reversing their own decisions. Uh, so in that yeah. sense, I guess they just figure if it's going to cost them a few billion dollars, I guess, to get telecos to uh, to reverse course or, uh, or or to underwrite some of their costs that, you know, after all the money that we've already spent on the pandemic, you know, what's a few billion more, you know, uh, obviously, I don't share that view, but it seems uh, uh, that uh, decisions here are not are not primarily based on uh, based on cost and uh, the government believes that uh, um, money can ultimately remedy uh, its shortcomings. Look, the reason why the government doesn't have a strategy on China is then that would mean the government would actually have to follow a consistent and coherent course on China. Yeah. Um, and so I think the government is deliberately eschewing having a strategy. Uh, 
Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's also unfortunate for our telecom and IT infrastructure because ultimately what companies want is certainty. Um, and so by creating uncertainty, it also then creates sort of uh, a needlessly uh, challenging business environment uh, for companies to uh, to do business. And so I think it would just be uh, um, it would just be candid, frank and honest by the government to, you know, rather than trying to sort of, you know, we're not really banning Huawei, but you shouldn't really use Huawei. Just come out and say it and just be straightforward and straight up um, and you know it's at least you know something some one way we can shore up this sort of rather uh, tenuous diplomatic boycott of the uh, Beijing Olympics uh, but probably the government is afraid that if it takes a decision on Huawei now that some of our athletes are going to uh, end up getting a long-term stay or courtesy of the Chinese regime um, and so perhaps this might be one of the reasons why once again the government is trying to punt this can down the road um, in the hopes that I guess there might be sunnier days where it might actually have the guts to take the decision um, that uh, it should be taking on this critical issue. Yeah. Well, you know, you can only kick it down so far and then it kind of catches up with you. But nonetheless, Christian, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Appreciate it. Well, I'm afraid we're going to talk about this a few more times probably oh, before yeah. we'll actually get a decision out of this government on Huawei. Uh, but hopefully that uh, uh, better minds will prevail in the long term. Thank you, Alex. It's the only guarantee we have. Thanks, Christian. That is uh, Christian Luprecht, uh, who, by the way, also has a new book out if you are interested in a good little stocking stuffer. It's called Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft. So he talks about a lot of all this stuff in that book. Based on the timing of when we understand, when we believe the murders took place, we have this individual coming into a very defined area uh, around the uh, Sherman's household, and remaining in that area for a period and then leaving from that area. So we have been unable to um, identify what purpose that person had to be within that defined area um, and therefore, and the timing is, uh, is in line with our uh, belief as to when this, uh, these murders took place. And so that is why we classify this individual as a suspect. Here we are four years to the day that we would learn Honey and Barry Sherman had been found murdered in their home. We hear from Toronto police that they are now looking for someone who they believe is a suspect and who was, as you heard, caught on surveillance. He's seen walking past the house the day before the couple was found, but very much at a time when police believe the murder could have taken place. And they say they haven't been able to identify this person seen walking around the home stays there for a while before leaving, and they believe his behavior is suspicious. And the Toronto cops have interviewed and cleared dozens of people over the years, but apparently this person is someone they want to speak to, and they want to know who this person is and that person to turn themselves in. You know, it's been four years of uh, dead ends for the cops here who have been criticized for making a number of mistakes during this investigation and who haven't literally been able to solve this double murder. So... What took so long for this latest development to come out? Let us ask someone who's been covering this case since day one, Catherine McDonald, joining us, our Global News Radio, Global News Television uh, crime, crime expert. Good to have you. Hello. How are you? Well, you know, we heard that they were going to say something today, and I thought, well, there's no way they've solved this. But I thought it was a pretty interesting development, because when you go back to December 13th, so yesterday, 
Um, police believe that both Honey and Barry would have died between 9 to 12 p.m. on that day. And this mm-hmm. image that they have put out there captured at that time. They don't say that this is the person they are accusing of doing this, but that they haven't been able to clear them. So what more do you have? Yeah, I, I, I have a lot of, um, I think my insight into this is a little bit different, Alex. I, first of all, we found, we found out where that video was taken from. Today, we drove around the neighborhood. Um, I was quite determined to find out where that particular video was shot. And it was actually shot at a house mm-hmm. on a street called Ballantyne Drive. Um, and I actually couldn't find it. And then I was speaking to a friend who grew up in that neighborhood. And she said, you know, there's a synagogue at the end of Old Colony Road, Catherine. And people mm-hmm. used to, burglars used to park on just on the other side of the parking lot. And, and they would, that was a quick getaway. So maybe try, so I looked at the map and I found this house on Valentine Drive. It's 1.3 kilometers away. And, and that video actually mm-hmm. clearly showed the suspect leaving that night, walking away. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, wow, that's a, quite a distance to walk on a snowy night. Um, and then I saw a bus go by and I thought, you know, if this man was really as an organized criminal as many of us think, he, he likely um, came on bus and left on bus. Um, and um, we asked detectives today, did, was there someone picking him up or dropping him off? They wouldn't answer. But from what I understand, uh, the video that they that they contract this suspect on shows him arriving in the vicinity of 50 Old Colony Road, where the Shermans lived. And then Mm. he disappears from the camera. And that's because we know the Shermans didn't have video surveillance. And from what I've been told, um, he disappears for a period of time. At the time, investigators determined that the murders took place. And then sometime later, he reappears on camera, leaving that area. So while they've called him a suspect, and people are saying, why is he a suspect? He just hasn't been cleared. It seems quite clear to me that this is the man they believe either killed the Shermans on his own or worked with someone else. They said that it's not clear if he is the lone suspect. But the word suspect clearly to me means that he's the man they believe entered that home and killed Honey and Barry Sherman that night on December 13th. They were not found for two more days. Yeah, I'll get to to the mistakes kind of from the beginning in just a second. But I want to know, like, why did it take? They, they've had a lot of video. They've talked to a lot of witnesses. They've talked to a lot of people of interest that they call them. Um, and they've cleared those people. Why, why is this just surfacing now? Or did they have this uh, video and they were trying to figure it out? And now they need the, the public. Yeah, help? they definitely have had this video for a long time. And I can tell you, um, you know, Brandon Price, the detective in charge, talked about how they you know, they try to, they get a, what they call a cell phone tower dump. And they try mm-hmm. to um, figure out if this person had a phone uh, mm-hmm. based on the pings on different towers in the neighborhood. They try and they get names after getting a search warrant. They go through and they literally try to eliminate every name yeah. that pings. It sounds to me like this guy, whoever this person or, or woman could be is, this, this individual, they didn't get a ping from the phone. And from the line, what I've heard, that means that this person didn't call out or receive a call or had a burner phone or the person left their phone at home. And what I've been told is that, you know, people in street gangs now are are smart enough that they don't take their phones with them when they commit a crime. So this, this leads me to believe that this person was, was a professional. Uh, Let's just say, I mean, I was standing on the street where this video was taken. um, And the reason they said they, they released this video, by the way, it was the best quality video they had of this man. So they probably, if they tracked him for 1.3 kilometers leaving, they probably have, you know, 25 images of him walking all the way to that home, then out of out of out of camera sight, 
um, you know, because that's when he probably entered the home. And then at some time later, they wouldn't say what that interval was. They get him back on camera leaving the area. Imagine he walked one point, you know, yeah. it's like over a kilometer. And he's and that was him just casually walking down the street that night um, on a snowy night in December of 2017, having allegedly just killed this couple in their home. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating development. Nonetheless, it's four years later, and tonight is the night that we would have been breaking this news. And I remember, like it was yesterday, when my sister called and said, oh, my God, Honey Sherman has been, like, what is going on? And and my sister knew her from before, just through some people that they had in common. And, you know, it was automatically, as you remember, it was um, labeled a murder-suicide, like almost instantly. Well, and then, of course... It, it, was, it was a number of newspapers... Based on what Brandon Price said that night, which was there was no sign of forced entry and we're not looking for any suspects, a number of newspapers, the Toronto Sun, I believe um, the Globe and Mail reported that, uh, you know, sources tell tell us, uh, being the Star and the Sun or whatever papers, that that police are investigating this as a murder-suicide. I called a number of police sources and no one said to Global News or to me that we believe this is a murder-suicide. But it was based on those comments that came off as, well, usually when you're not looking for a suspect, it's because you believe that, it, you know, the, the suspect is dead. Right. Um, but we, that was, the police never said that. That's when Ed, Edward, or Brian Greenspan, pardon me, was, was hired and quickly came out. Uh, you know, I went to the funeral and I remember how angry Jonathan was, the mm-hmm. son, because mm-hmm. they were, they, they felt the police had suddenly labeled this as something that they didn't want to believe. And it was only then about uh, six weeks later, maybe longer, I can't remember, that they, they, they said, no, this is a double homicide. But from the beginning, the family was upset because the you know, papers called it a murder-suicide based on their sources. We didn't. And, they, and, and you know, police then, uh, and I think the Greenspan team tried to uh, say that if it weren't for their, their, for their findings, the Toronto police might not have gone that way. Uh, they, they, yeah. they felt they helped the Toronto police with this investigation. Well, yeah, who knows? I mean, there were other issues that came up. I mean, whether they had missed evidence or didn't do a proper search around the house or, or, or you know, it's, it's been one of those investigations that it's um, it's been nagging for them. It's taken four years for them to, you know, come forward with any tangible leads or whatever. So this is by far the most significant lead we get. They do have technology today that can do facial recognition, but when you look at that image, uh, I'm not sure what they will glean off of that. So they're, they're going to have to look, as he said in, in the press conference today, fa- watch the way he walks, look at the gait and how he, he walks or she walks. Someone's going to know who that person is. It's just a matter yeah. of who's going to report it. And they, are, they were able to determine that this person is between 5'6 and 5'9 and a half. That comes from yep. kind of technology. Um, but, I mean, it's fascinating. To me, what's most, you know, puzzling is the, whole, the fact that this person uh, walks that far from the scene. And, uh, you know, where was he going? But maybe he did take public, public transit because I can tell you by the time they figured out, you know, the, his tracked him, that any video from a TCC would have been gone. And a, a smart criminal wouldn't get dropped off or picked up. Uh, for the reason that they know they they are going to be watched by video, right? So, or maybe um, he wanted to keep an eye on the location, case it out, make sure that people weren't coming home or people weren't checking in. I mean, you know, I, I don't think it would be the first time that someone accused in a murder would, uh, you know, uh, have checked out their work or watched their work or been no, uh, navigating sure, but, it. But why yeah. walk 1.3 kilometers away from the scene before getting picked up? Like that to me is puzzling. And again, if he was hired to do this job, which many of us believe this was an organized. Uh, you know, a hitman that did this for someone, uh, then maybe he was given an address and he was told, go there. And 
he went and did, did what he was told to do and he left, you know, and, and he might have taken public transit or he parked at some distance because he knew, again, he maybe didn't take his cell phone knowing that he would be that would be a way to track his movement. Right. So where does it go from here? Is it just a matter of a public tip coming in uh, or, yeah, or do I they have they more to, or do they have other yeah. images? Well, they have lots of images of this man um, or this person. We don't know it's a man. We assume it's a man. But, you know, we've seen women dress up like men. So it could be a woman. Um, and I think they're waiting for the tip now. And is it a, mm. you know, is it going to happen? Who, who knows? God, for that family, you just pray that it does. They've been through a lot. And uh, no matter how much money they got, that does not ease the suffering that they have been through in the last four years. And boy, would you just love to see this one get solved. And Nonetheless, you know, Kath. And the, yeah. and the police remind the public that that $10 million reward that the family's offering privately, uh, leading to an arrest in this case, is still being offered. And, you know, I was thinking about that. For this family, what's $10 million? It's nothing. But, but for someone, it's a lot of money. So maybe someone will become, uh, you know, desperate and greedy and, and uh, you know, call the police with a tip and turn, you know, from, and turn on a friend or uh, someone they knew in jail. You know, who knows? Yeah, well, no question about it. Today was a big one, so we'll wait and see what happens. Appreciate you uh, giving the, the update on it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good night. That is Miss Catherine McDonald, who has been uh, working this story for a good long time, so we'll see where it takes us. Just be so nice to get uh, that one punctuated and put away. So we'll see where it takes us. All right, when we come back, uh, we'll get into our counterpoint round one brought by our very good friends over at Pizzaville. We'll do that. Come on up at 9 o'clock. I'm going to talk to a fun guy about germs. Germs, germs, they're everywhere. Some germs are just creating more problems than others. But we will talk to him about that, and he's pretty cool and measured, so I think uh, he'll give us some good perspective on what you need to know. When we come back, round one of CounterPoint, brought to you by our friends at Pizzaville here on Point on Global News Radio. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio.